Welcome back to another episode of Unyielded, Thriving No Matter What. I'm your host, Bobby Kaler. On this podcast, we explore all things related to thriving and flourishing in life. There are three fundamental truths that inform not just my podcast, but my coaching as well. And they are, number one, the future can be changed. You are not stuck and you are not trapped by your predictable future. Wherever you are right now, it's just your present state. It does not determine where you can go in life. Fundamental truth number two, you can change your future. This might be the best news of all. You don't need to be rescued by someone else. You can do that for yourself. In other words, you can be your own hero. And fundamental truth number three, you do not have to wait. Too many people think that they have to have the perfect plan or all the knowledge or all the skills before they can get started. Nothing is further from the truth. I've coached a lot of people in my career. And trust me when I say that you can learn whatever it is that you need to learn along the way. The key is to start. If you've listened to the podcast before, you'll probably know that we find stories and experts who shed light on these different areas so that we can all flourish and thrive. Let's dive in to today's episode. My guest today was touched by tragedy in 2016. That tragedy led him to dedicate his life to change the narrative on mental health. In fact, at the time of us recording his podcast episode, he was literally driving from Reno to Salt Lake City on his tour. His name is Jeff Johnston, and it's time to hear his story. Jeff, thank you so much for joining me. You are literally on the road as you're joining me. So welcome to the show. Bobby, I'm very excited to be here. I know you and I have conversed a little bit on social media, but Now I really get to meet you and we get to peel back the layers of some of these conversations, the topics that we have about mental health and substance use disorders and addictions. I'm really looking forward to this. And I think it's great. You're on the road with your tour right now. But before we jump to all that, can you just share with us your story? Because it's a powerful one. Yeah, I'll give you kind of a a Reader's Digest version. A few years back, I was uh, 50 years old. I'm 56 now. So this was um, 2016. And at that point in my life, Bobby, I had pretty much reached every goal that I wanted to reach when I graduated college at the age of 23. Wow. I was the owner of a successful investment company called Premier Investments of Iowa. We managed around $700 million under management, which is a, a lot of money that's bigger than a lot of banks in our area. I had seven financial advisors in our firm and six full-time staff. You know, I was pretty comfortable. Married 21 years to my lovely wife, Prudence. Three boys. Seth was our oldest, age 23. Ian was my middle, age 15. And Roman was my youngest at 13. Living in Iowa. Wow. I hit the lottery. I really, really was patting myself on the back every day. Not as a narcissist, but just as someone saying, you know what? I put the 100 hours a week in. I slept in my car. I borrowed off my relatives. And now I'm here. And then, Bobby, like life always does, almost every time, is when you reach the top, something knocks you down. And October 4, 2016, I got that phone call that every parent dreads. It's that call that you instantaneously become a member of a club that you didn't ask to join, the one you can't leave. 
And that's finding out that your child died. In my case, it was my oldest child, our oldest child, Seth, who died at the age of 23 from fentanyl poisoning. And that was the end of a six-year journey for him. It started with Adderall. Really? His attention de- that started with uh, attention deficit diagnosis, which I don't want to get into that too deep because that's one thing that I really regret as a dad, that I let him down, that I let a doctor diagnose that he had a disorder. And we can't just leave attention deficit alone. We have to add words like disorder. And I mm-hmm. think that that really changed the mindset of my son when he found out he had a disorder. Now we felt that this pill he took every day, if he didn't take it, literally he would turn into a werewolf and eat his friends at night. So he yeah. took the pill. He ended up taking two of them. And then he got off it. And then like a lot of adolescents, he, he experimented at the same time with marijuana, alcoholism, you know, sexual activity. And all the things that out that, that adolescents do, uh, depression, anxiety, all, all these things that, that normal kids have, not the abnormal ones, but the normal ones, if there is such a thing as normal. And got incarcerated, released, was sent to prison. And then 60 days after released from prison, heroin took his life, specifically fentanyl. So from 16 to 23, my wife and my two boys and all of our friends and family witnessed the destruction, devastation, the fatality of what happens when you go down these roads, what I call now the bitter road. Yeah. Man, it had to be hard to watch. It was terrible. It was the most helpless feeling I can. And those people watching and listening to your show, they're nodding their heads in their cars. They're shaking their heads at their homes. They're saying, yeah, I I know what you're Mm -hmm. saying, Jeff. I'm currently living that life right now, or I have been through that life, or I'm terrified my two-year-old will grow up and go down that life. That's so, right. yeah, so we talked earlier off air about sharing stories and being vulnerable. And I really do think that's something as human beings, when you peel back the colors of our skins and how much money we have and what we look like and what sex we are, I think when you peel all that back and you get down to the core inner being, we're all the same. Yeah. We all have stories. We all have pain. But at the end of the day, we all can choose our own suffering. And that's where I think is the pivot. That's what I think is the difference between what most people that linger and hang on to these things. And then those like myself that have chosen suffer in a unique way. And my suffering is a positive, inspirational way. Yeah. It's an interesting way that you put that, Jeff, choose our own suffering. Yeah, I firmly believe that. I'm not sure if you read Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Yeah. But it's one of those books that changed my life. And I don't remember a lot about the book, but I remember one sentence he said, suffering is my opportunity. When I read those four words, I actually wrote it down and it's going to be a tattoo on my body at some point. (laughs) But what I did is I rephrased it into my own words like I did in college. Now they call that plagiarism. But what I did is I took suffering is my opportunity and I made it into this. Pain is unavoidable, but suffering is a choice. And so if you say that a few times, Bobby, pain is unavoidable, suffering is a choice. I think that really hits home to a lot of people. You know what? Losing a child sucks. It stinks. That pain, I cannot avoid that pain, but I certainly can mitigate and control the suffering. Yeah. I'm not obligated to suffer Mm -hmm. in any way. I don't have to listen to therapists. I don't have to listen to, to grief professionals. I can suffer in any way that I choose. And I choose not to suffer negatively. Yeah. And and I think that relates to what you talk about on the website, right? The two roads, the road of bitter or the road of better. Right. 
Do you want to yeah, speak that, about those two a bit more? Yeah. So what happened after Seth died, my wife and I both took the bitter road, Bobby. Understandably. Uh, we both, yeah, we were both functional alcoholics. I've been drinking probably since about ninth grade. So from ninth grade to 50 years old, I drank probably five days a week. Not blackout stage, not stumbling drunk stage, but I had alcohol in my system five to six days a week. I could drink a bottle of red wine with my wife, go to bed. Is that an alcoholic? I don't know. I, does it really freaking matter if it is? I mean, that's the stupidity of this whole labeling and diagnosis thing. Who gives a crap if I'm an alcoholic, if I'm drinking five days a week? I mean, I'm sure I could find someone that says, well, Jeff, if you're not causing problems, then you're not an alcoholic. Well, I don't need to be drinking five days a week. I knew that. So when my son died, my wife and I went seven days a week and I stayed home. My wife stayed home. We drank. We felt sorry for each other. Probably fought. I didn't work. I fortunately had a business where it was self-sufficient without me. And I have to be lucky for that. But 14 months into it, my wife and I were in the darkest place we've ever been. I mean, have you ever been in that position or do you know people, Bobby, that that didn't want to live, but they didn't want to die? It's like I didn't want to take my life because I just like life too much, but I didn't want to get out of bed. I didn't want to talk to people. I was alone and lonely, but I didn't want to talk to anybody. Yeah. It's It's a tough thing to work through when people are reaching out for help. You're pushing it back, but then you're complaining about being alone. Yeah. It's that no man's land, kind of. Right. I was there for 14 months. On December 24, 2017, at the age of 52, I woke up in Florida, looked in the mirror and said, that's it. I'm done. I'm done drinking. I'll start with that. If I'm sober, then I can work through a lot of my problems. If I drunk, I can't. So I decided drinking was the one thing I was going to. And I didn't give up drinking. That's insinuating that I'm missing something. You know, you give up desserts, you give up things that you like and you feel like you're going to miss. I don't miss drinking. So from that regard, I didn't give up anything. And giving up and not drinking has been the easiest thing I've ever done in my life as an alcoholic. Mm. I don't call myself sober because that implies I'm in a fight. I just choose not to drink today. Yeah. That's simple. It's that simple. I don't care about yesterday. I don't keep score. I know what day I quit. I don't know how many days that is. I don't care. It's a lot. I don't worry about tomorrow. I got to live there first. I may drink tomorrow. I may not. I'll make that choice tomorrow. So I'm not going to torture myself if I make a poor choice. I just know right now, today, I'm not going to drink. Do you think that when we judge it and we put labels on it, is that a form of making it more complicated, increasing the uh, stakes? It also becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you try to avoid something so much, if I say, (laughs) I'm not going to eat candy, 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 I don't want to eat sugar, don't want to eat sugar all day long. And I go on social media and tell everybody, you know, I'm, I've been sugar sober for, you know, all of a sudden, I don't know why we have to do that. Yeah. It's like the person who says, I'm not going to say, um, when I'm talking. Yeah. <laughs> if that's your focus, what happens? You say, um, way more right. than if you didn't have that focus. I do say, um, all the time. You're right. That's why I'm laughing. Cause that's one thing I consciously try to work on because mm-hmm. I say, um, a lot. You're right. Yeah. The other thing too, though, Jeff, there is, I was listening to some podcast, I don't remember which one it was, but it was someone who was talking about when we tell ourselves like, oh, I struggle with anxiety, we're reinforcing that in our own minds that we struggle with anxiety. And this was a person, he used to be on several different anxiety medications. And he said, finally, I made a switch and I started saying, I used to struggle with, and he's like, you know what? It was an amazing thing. It kind of it released some of it because he was no longer telling himself, oh, you struggle with anxiety. And I'm, I don't want to make light of anxiety. It's a very real thing. No, no, no. Don't. The yep. stories that we tell ourselves, it matters. Yeah. You're always free to tell yourself a new story about your past. That's You're right. You're always free 
tell yourself a new story about your past. I'll tell you a story that I wrote in my book. And I said, this is why I don't talk about sobriety. And I don't tell myself, like people go to a meeting and they stand up and say, hi, Bobby, I'm Jeff. I'm an alcoholic, right? Yep. And maybe I haven't drank in 20 years, but I call myself an alcoholic. Okay. Okay. So in my book, I said, okay, let's say I'm overweight, hundred pounds. All right. And I go to a overweight anonymous meeting and now I've lost my hundred pounds and I'm not overweight. But I wouldn't stand up and say, hi, I'm Jeff. I'm overweight. I wouldn't say that. So why the hell do we say that to ourselves when we're not that person anymore? It's that simple for my mindset. And again, tomorrow, I'll worry about tomorrow when I get there, Bobby. I'm not there yet. Why am I going to torture myself and worry about tomorrow? Right. But we do that a lot. We're constantly right. worrying about the next thing. Right. And labeling is so important. I had a lady reach out to me on Facebook and she said, hey, Jeff, I'm really struggling. And I get this all the time, Bobby, because somehow people think I'm an expert. I'm just a dad from Iowa. I could, could have cared less about mental health five years ago. Now I'm immersed myself in it. But she reached out as though I was a therapist. She said, hey, Jeff, I have survivor's guilt. My daughter died three years ago. I feel like I should have been there. I feel like I should have died. Should have been mm -hmm. me instead of her. What do you suggest I do to get over survivor's guilt? Wow, right? How do I answer that from a non-clinician perspective? So I thought to myself, okay, I'm a stoic philosopher in a, in a way. Let's reframe the situation. So I replied back to her and I said, okay, here's what I'm going to suggest you do. For the next week, take the word guilt out and replace it with opportunity. So now you have survivor's opportunities. You don't have survivor's guilt anymore. Who the hell has the right to tell you you have survivor's guilt? Somebody told you that. You didn't make that phrase up. Somebody told you that and now you believe it. And now you're participating in that narrative. How about you just tell yourself you have survivor's opportunities and see what happens in your mindset? She got back to me a week or two later, could not believe how much it changed her life, her mindset, her attitude changed. As something as simple as taking away the diagnosis and replacing it with something optimistic, free, mm -hmm. no insurance, no therapist, no meds, and still right. do all that stuff, still do yoga, meditation, whatever you need to do. But we need to start telling ourselves a new story about how doctors and society want to label us. I don't allow people in my bubble, Bobby, to use the word disorder for attention deficit. I don't do it. Yeah, I have attention deficit. I'm full-blown attention deficit. I love it. I lean into it. It's the best thing I've ever been given to me in my life. I don't know who gave it to me, but I love it. And I do not allow people to use the word disorder because it's not a disorder. So going back to the story. So for 14 months, Bobby, my wife and I drank a drink. I decided to quit. And I thought it would help her. I'll be completely honest with you. December 24, 2017, the day I quit was to help my wife. It was to help her. As it turned out, I realized how easy it was for me to quit drinking. And it, for her, it didn't work. And on June 29th of last year, 2021, at the age of 46, married 21 years, I buried my wife for alcoholism. Wow. And I have to say, it was from the death of burying Seth. So there's a good example of two people. And I'm not throwing her under the bus. By all means, I love my wife literally to death. But there was a pivot there that I made a conscious choice to take the better road. And she made the conscious choice to stay on the bitter road. I'm here. She's not. I can continue her story. I can continue her legacy. She was a wonderful mom, a wonderful wife, my best friend. I miss her immensely. But I am here today. And I can honestly tell you, I'm in the best place at the age 56. I've ever been emotionally in my entire life. I'm at the best place physically I've ever been. I'm at the best place spiritually, existentially, but it's taken a lot of work. It's taken a lot of daily work. Yeah. A lot of daily things I do that I can spend some time talking about what I do daily. And then I like to spend a little bit of time on what happened a few months ago that I think is an important part of this story that should make people feel a lot more at ease.
with their struggles. Yeah. Is that what happened around Christmas time that you were? Yeah. 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 Tell me, tell me about that. So seven months ago over Christmas, my wife died in June. I put down 16 year old cat and the next day my mom died. No way. At age 89. So from, so not just my son dying, you know, our son dying five years ago in the midst of June, October, November, I lost my wife, my 16 year old cat and my, my mom. And that just really added on to a lot of my pain. So over Christmas, my two boys were in college. One boy was in high school and was in college. And I had these seven boxes that my wife had, and I put them in my living room. And I kept going by them and going by them over Christmas. Finally, one day on a Friday, Bobby, I sat down with my chair and I thought, you know, these boxes aren't going to walk out of here by themselves. No. I don't want to just put them in the basement. I'm going to go through them. Hey, I'm Mr. You know, look at my shirt. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm Mr. Living Undeterred. I wrote a book. I have a podcast. I'm bulletproof. I'm superhuman. I bought, you know, I already had my RV bought. I already had the tour plan. What could go wrong, right? So I sat down, pulled up the first box. And the very first box, the very first box was a box about my son, Seth. And right on top was a letter he had written me from prison that I'd never read. Oh, man. And I made it to the first page. And it was, hey, dad. I'm so sorry I let you and mom down. And it's just, you know, just so many things he was saying, acknowledging that I was a really good dad. And it hit me so hard. To this day, I've not made it past the first page. Wow. So the other three pages, I've not read. I don't want to read because leaving him unread is like a future conversation I can have with my son. So I don't want to read it because I want to anticipate seeing him again or hearing from him again. Yeah. And so... That was the first box. That was hard. And the second, I think after the first box, I shut my phone off and shut my computer off. And then I get to the second box and it was wedding photos and our trip to London and our trip to Europe and pictures of children. And I went from Mr. Undeterred Bobby to knowing it would take me seven and a half seconds to type in my safe combination, get my Beretta out and shoot myself in the head. That's the first brush I've ever had with suicidal ideation and the only one I've ever had. Even after I went through all I went through, I never thought about taking my life. Just that one night. It happened so fast, so quick, and I didn't do it. And two days later, my business partner's wife came over. And I can honestly tell you, I don't remember what I did for two days. I didn't drink. I didn't do drugs. Probably just sat in my bed and watched Netflix, cried. But my friends, I had 200 texts. I had emails, phone calls. Everyone thought something really bad happened. So my business partner's wife came over and I was okay. But here's where I'm going with this. So moral of the story is, I wanted to figure out how this happened, right? Yeah. I wanted to understand how somebody from the perception of being so put together, so strong and so resilient could just as recently as Christmas consider suicide. And what I found out was the week preceding, the week or two preceding, I stopped my meditation completely. I normally meditate 10 minutes every morning mindfulness meditation. And I stopped running on my elliptical for about the same time frame. So that was the common theme was that I took sh- I took shortcuts. So I was doing really good. I was meditating. I was working out. I was doing all my things. Then over Christmas, my mom dies and I kind of just got lazy. I got complacent. And I realized pretty quickly it wasn't the contents of the boxes that got me in trouble. It was the content of this box that got me in trouble. Yeah. And the so- mind. I can't blame the photographs. I can't blame the letter. Like, I can't blame the diagnosis. I can't blame Mm -hmm. alcohol. The reality was my mind wasn't in the best place to handle 
opening those boxes. And so that's what I take to the streets. And that's what I take to my presentations is when you look at a picture of your deceased child, it isn't the picture that gets you grief stricken. It's what's in your mind that perceives, puts the emotions into the picture. The picture itself is just a picture. That's right. It doesn't have any emotional qualities. We add everything as human beings. And so now I don't get triggered very easily because through meditation, I realized that that feeling as quickly as that triggering feeling comes, it's going to die as well. Plus, I think, Jeff, too, when you were talking about that, it, it made me think about our mental state. You know, if we're in a positive mental state, then or a negative mental state, that makes a huge difference on how we perceive things, how we see things and view them. I mean, it can make a tremendous difference. And I also think, I don't know if it was that you were lazy or complacent because, you know, you said that I think sometimes like other things happen, right? Or, you know, we think, oh, well, I'm really strong. It's okay if I skip a couple days. But man, to have those habits where we are making sure that we're practicing and we're at our best. I don't talk about mental health. I talk more about mental fitness, which is there's some, it's that, am I preparing do I have the capacity that I need to respond to life's challenges? Because that's the thing. I'm so happy you said that, Bobby, because it's a lot more than positivity. It's a lot more than <laughs> optimism because I think having unrealistic expectations yep. is the same as being overly positive or as they say, toxic positivity is that thing phrase. That's right. Because I have these three pillars of the living on the turf mindset. So I have like three pillars that I think if everybody could subscribe to these three pillars, I think they can improve their quality of life. The first one is expectations, realistic Mm -hmm. expectations of life. And what I mean by expectations is let's just take death, for example. We all know that death is coming. We all know. Me, you, my kids, my dog, my cat, my grandparents, my neighbors, we're all going to die. Yet with this wisdom, knowledge, and intellect, when death enters our lives, most of us just absolutely crumble. Mm -hmm. So we have this unrealistic expectation with not just life, because we think life is going to be like everybody we see on Facebook and TikTok. And at 56, we're going to be in millions of dollars and be perfect health. And we have these unrealistic expectations. We also have an unrealistic expectation with death. We think it's not going to happen to us. We think it's, no, not my son, not my mom and dad. But it doesn't happen in any order. It doesn't happen in any convenience. Quite often it happens at bad times in the wrong order. And so expectations is my, that's my number one pillar is to get to a point where you have a healthy respect with death, but you have a love and reverence for life. That balance of death and life gives you to live in the now, in the moment. And the second pillar is, yeah, the second pillar is preparation. What are you doing each day to prepare for the marathon of life? For me, it's meditation. It's reading, it's writing, it's eating healthy, avoiding sugars, lower my caffeine intake, no toxicity in my life. I don't watch any TV. I don't follow any politics. I used to follow economic news. I don't even follow that. I used to care about stock market. I don't watch the stock market at all anymore. So all avoiding all that toxicity creates a, a lot of my awareness of my enjoyment of life. Yeah. I'm not captured in thought by if my stock drops today or if you know this or Trump wins the election or... I don't really care. It has no bearing on my life today, today, maybe tomorrow. But again, I got to live to tomorrow. I got to get there first. Mm -hmm. And then the the third pillar, I think is probably the most important. That's evolution. That's your evolution of self. That's how are you evolving as a human being? It's not possible to stay the same. You may look in the mirror tomorrow and you may look in the mirror and say, well, I look like Jeff Johnston or Bobby Kaler of yesterday, but this person today is different. 
Either I'm a little yeah. dumber or I'm a little smarter. Either I'm a little poorer shape or I'm a little bit better shape. I'm in better health or I'm in worse health. I can't stay the same. So how are you evolving as a human being? And so when someone says, well, time heals all wounds or you'll get over your grief, I don't really believe that. I'm not a big fan of that. I think we need to constantly be in learning mode and evolve. And I think we'll adapt. And I think that does the healing. I don't think time itself is going to heal. And if it heals, it doesn't mean it's better. You could heal an injury and still be worse, or you could heal and become better. So I think time certainly helps, but it doesn't heal completely. So yeah. evolution is real. Evolution is very, very key. Yeah. And I like how you said that too there, Jeff, the part about the, the continual learning, you know, because I think what might be embedded in that is if we're continually learning, we're typically growing. And the other thing too, and, and this really came out when I watched your video, that shift from bitter to better, it didn't happen overnight. Because I think this is where we can refer back to the toxic positivity. For example, a couple of years ago, we had the East Troublesome Fire. It came through Colorado and it burned 198,000 acres and we were directly in its path. So we got the notification that we had to evacuate. You had to evacuate now. And as we were oh, leaving, wow. yeah, there was one road in, one road out. And so we're leaving and we can see the fire. It's coming towards us. The, the winds hit 100 miles an hour that night. And I mean, my first thought was, are we going to make it out? And we did. That was that was awesome. Wow. But then I thought, man, based on where how it's heading, our house is going to be gone. You know, it's just going to be gone. And, and luckily, our house wasn't, although 28 of our neighbors lost their homes. But two minutes oh, from wow. our home, the entire reason we moved there, it was it's next to a Nordic center. And I love cross-country skiing. So this was like, this was the reason we moved there. I love the cross-country. And it used to be, you know, forested and all that kind of stuff. And like there's not a tree left. Even the rocks were burnt. Like the fire was incredibly hot. So the very first time we went out cross-country skiing after the fire, it was like skiing in an Ansel Adams picture. It was literally black and white. I mean, it was black tree stumps, black rocks, and the snow. And it was eerie. And I remember thinking, well, you have yeah. to find the positive in this. You have to find the positive in this. And so I started trying to do that. Like, well, you know, the view is better because now the trees aren't in the way. And I stopped myself and I uh, thought, wait a minute, there's great value in that kind of perspective, but you can't force it. Like this right. was a trauma. Go ahead and you can feel that. But I think that's where the, pos the toxic positivity comes in where we don't allow ourselves. It's okay to grieve something because I think that's, that's part right. to you, use your terms the evolution, right? That's how we, we kind of evolved. But yeah, the allowing ourselves that process, because I think it also goes yeah. to the expectations that you talked about, right? We go through something right. and it's like, well, I shouldn't feel anything. Well, is that real? Well, here's something to think about too. This helps me when I get into those moods where I feel the grief and trauma and the pain coming. Yeah. Is, here's here. This is, sounds like a perverse mindset of Bobby, but hear me through this. So when I feel these things coming, what I tell myself is, okay, when I used to go to the gym, now I work out at home, but when I used to go to the gym, I had that feeling where I didn't want to go. I just like, ah, eh, I don't really want to go. I don't want to work out. I'm not looking forward to lifting weights. I don't want to run for an hour. And then when I was done, a hundred percent of the time, when I walked out of that gym, I felt really good. Yeah. I felt really, I never worked out and felt worse. So I started asking myself, Okay. Whenever I ever cried, it felt worse when I was done. Never. Mm. Not one time in my life. Not one time. So now when I feel grief and pain and sorrow coming, I lean into it like a workout. As I tell yeah. myself, okay, I'm going to the mental gym right now. I'm going to the mental gym, taking my bag. 
I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to freaking cry my tail off. I'm going to sit on the floor in a fetal position. But I know when I'm done. I know when I'm done. I'm going to feel really, really good. So bring it on. Let's do this three times a day. Let's work out three times a day. <laughs> so I'm not pushing it back. And like most people say, well, let, let's go through the stages of grief. Let's fight it. Let's deal with it. No, no, no. Let's bring it on. Let's bring on more of it because I come out of it better every single time. And sometimes it's what we need, that release. Denying it is never going to make it better. For me, it's like drinking. I know AA doesn't, the AA 12 steps doesn't endorse my Jeff Johnston method of not drinking, but there's a lot of people that AA doesn't work for them either. It's finding that arrow in the quiver, you know, mm -hmm. one arrow, two arrows, three arrows. So when that beast shows up on your front step, you can pull out that arrow and you can just keep shooting arrows. So, you know, if you're religious, maybe God is your arrow. If you're agnostic, maybe it's the earth. Maybe it's the universe is your arrow. If you're an exercise bum, if you're a yoga, if you're meditation, if you're vegan, you got all these arrows, so you can build this massive quiver. I liked what you're saying there about the different arrows. Because sometimes yeah. you got to try, you have to try different things to find what works for you. And look how bad our our mental health is in this country. Pretty bad. So I got asked by a TV station the other day, Jeff, question are you trying to answer? What's your end game? Great question, right? Yeah. So here's my answer. If what we were doing was working, I wouldn't be in an RV for 95 days going around the United States. If what we were doing was working. I wouldn't be doing this. You should be asking, why is it what we're doing as a society isn't working? That's a perfect segue too. Tell us just a little bit about the tour and how people can learn more about that and connect and also your book. Yeah. Uh, my website is livingundeterred.org. My book is available through Amazon, all the different outlets. I also did an audio book as well. So if nice. you go to Audible, and I'd suggest probably doing that because it's my voice my passion, my story. And my book is called This One's For You, An Inspirational Journey Through Addiction, Death, and Meaning. It's a very inspirational book. My whole life's journey is to not teach or tell, but to show people mm. that it's possible to live an intentional life in the face of adversity and trauma that we all have. My story is my story. It's no better. It's no worse than your story, Bobby. If your only pain is putting your cat down or your grandpa died, then that's equal to the pain of me bearing a child. It may not be when we're comparing grief with other people, which is a deadly thing to do. Yep. But your cat being put down is just as traumatic as me bearing a child. Yeah. So we need to look at grief as very personal, very unique. From that lens, the solutions and answers must be personal, must be unique, or they won't work. And that's yeah. why what we're doing isn't working because nothing out there is personal and unique. Everything is boilerplated. Everything's a label. Everything's stigma. Everything's diagnosis. There's nothing personalized. And I'm really glad you made the point too about comparing grief because that, that's a trap a lot of people fall into, you know, and, and they think, oh, well, I know that, you know, my grief, it's not as bad as someone else's, but it's your grief. I had a grief counselor on um, Georgina, a grief coach. And that was one of the things that she talked about, like your grief is your grief and it hurts just as much as someone else's, you know, just in different ways. We're told not to compare ourselves with people like mm -hmm. success, like somebody drives a Lamborghini or somebody is better looking or more successful. Somebody's happier, but just as much as we don't want to compare the great things, we don't want to compare grief and the negative things either. That's just as, that's just, if not more deconstructive. 
It does not help us. Not at all. Any uh, parting thoughts before we wrap up? Yeah, I would say a few parting thoughts. My quote that's on the back of my shirts is kind of our motto for the living undeterred mindset is purpose becomes passion when it gets personal. Purpose becomes passion when it gets personal. And I want to tell all your followers and listeners and people that are going to see this, that the Living Undeterred team, we are building what I think is going to be a revolutionary mental health machine. It's the last, it's the only word I can come up with. I haven't built it yet, but I do think this is going to really transcend and change how people are dealing with their mental health and their quality of life. And it's going to be kind of a best of, of the best stories that I found on this 95-day tour on the United States, along with my kind of my entrepreneurial mindset that I have as an entrepreneur, and then a way to make mental health simple. Because the biggest issue out there, Bobby, if you're struggling, who do I call? What order do I call? How do I do this? How long do I do it? What's it cost me? There's no cohesiveness in the mental health space. And so we need to all lay our cards on the table. We need to come up with a way to really simplify mental health, and we need to do it sooner, not later. And I think when the tour gets done in five days, I think by early 2023, I'm going to have this widget built, and I'm going to be really happy to share it with people when we uh, we come out uh, come out beginning of next year. Wow. I think the most important thing there, Jeff, when I'm listening is helping people find the resources they need when they need them as quickly as possible. We need simple mental health planning. That's what we need. Yeah. And we need it yesterday. Because I know some of the stats, the stats are staggering right now. That suicide's up, the amount of drug abuse is up, alcohol. I mean, it's staggering. 800 a day. 800 suicides a day. 800 suicide, alcohol, drug overdose a day. So if you take alcohol, suicide, and overdose, Bobby, it's 800 Americans a day. And really, that's not the most important statistic, Bobby, because- that's a death statistic. We can't help the ones that are dead. But how about the families that are destroyed and devastated that death yeah. has not entered their life yet? That's where we should be focusing on. We got to work on keeping the ones from dying that are still here. That's yeah. where we, we should not spend as much time on the death statistics. And unfortunately, that's where the media goes. We need to spend time on the living statistics and how we can get people to avoid and prevent their premature deaths. Prevention and prehabituation. Right now, all we are in reactive mode. We're putting out a forest fire with thimbles. And, and we need to get now to the kids. We need to be able to demonstrate to them there's healthier ways for coping mechanisms. Yep. Nice. Very nice. Yep. Well, good luck with all the work. And you know, thank you for doing the work that you're doing. I can clearly see it's passion-driven, purpose-driven, and just keep changing lives out there. I'm sure that you could hear Jeff's passion as he was talking. Here are my three insights for thriving. Number one. You are always free to tell yourself a new story about your past. There's tremendous wisdom and power in this notion. Let me give you a very simple example. Let's say that you gave a presentation and it didn't go well. Now, you might tell yourself the story that you really blew it and that you're just not good at presentations. The more times you tell yourself this story, the more times you are reinforcing that story. The story that you are not good at presentations. When in fact, giving a presentation is a set of skills. So what sort of result do you think that gets you? More of the same result. However, another story that you could tell yourself is that in hindsight, you probably could have prepped a little bit better for the presentation by learning a little bit more about who is going to be in the audience or what challenges they were facing or what recent changes had occurred. 
or whatever it might be. But this story leads us to action that will help us improve. The powerful thing is that you can change that story at any time, even if the event happened years ago. Give it a try. You might be surprised. Insight number two, do we really have realistic expectations of ourselves? I have coached thousands of high achievers over the years, and a common theme is that you would truly have to be superhuman for the expectations that we place upon ourselves to be remotely reasonable. Now, unfortunately, because these expectations are so, so unrealistic and so harsh, this leads us to be unhappy more often than not. And finally, insight number three, be moved to action by the problem that you have to fix. When I listen to Jeff's story, that's one of the things that stands out the most to me. Thank you so much for tuning in and for listening. That wraps up today's episode. I hope that you're finding value in the different stories that we highlight here. I like to share these stories as a way to illustrate that we can all thrive no matter what.